welcome back to the Why Hockey Periodical Podcast, a history-making podcast. We have never done a podcast where the Florida Panthers are in the Eastern Conference Final. Very few people have, obviously, because podcasting didn't exist in 1996. I don't know what, what people would be podcasting about in 1996. I don't really want to think about that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't really remember 96 too much. Uh, I didn't really start... I mean, like, my earliest memories of hockey is the 97 run by the Flyers. So, you know, that let's just go to kind of put that in this perspective. But uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, the Panthers are doing things on the ice that we've said we wanted them to do, and we were hoping for a team that could, you know, show up in the playoffs, make noise, you know, overcome obstacles and, and we're getting to see it. So, you know, that realization has, re- I think, just been a a lift in all the fans and all the writers. I mean, uh, I think everyone's getting great content out of it. All, all the fans are getting a lot of, you know, fun out of it. The team's getting a lot of sales uh, in tickets and, and revenue and, and, you know, merch and all this stuff. So it's good for everybody. It's good for everybody, as I have been seeing on Twitter a lot. And it's something that registers obviously in your brain, but it doesn't sink in until you think about it. And because this franchise's history has been dictated by, Oh, 96 was cool for what a quarter century. Now you get to the point where it's not dictated by 96 anymore. This group of friends has run. We have a run now that isn't this one. Yes. But I mean, the runs just started. I mean, and, and so we don't want to counter. We don't want to start solidifying this one when they have to, you know, go deep in this next round and really put up a, you know, a fight where it's like, oh, they lost because of bounces. Oh, or they lost because of this or that that they couldn't control um, to really call it a to, to kind of match it to the 96 run. I mean, short of, you know, winning the conference final. Uh, they really need to to make use of this round to to kind of compare it because um, they're only halfway through and and just thinking about that I think puts into perspective the grind of the hockey playoffs and I know a lot of people want to change the way the playoffs is played in in certain aspects but the grind of the playoffs is what makes the cup such a hard trophy to win and such a rewarding trophy when it is won even one time. This playoffs has felt simultaneously like it's flown by, but has also taken like five years. Every game feels like it takes a year because so much happens in one game. Every game has so many different layers to it, and then you're off, and then you go do it again. And the whole series against Toronto was a was a funny one because it didn't really register with me that they were going to win this series until after game two and at that point I predicted the Leafs were going to win and I was wrong I think a lot of people were wrong on these predictions and again I keep saying like first of all why are you picking against your own team like it just makes no sense like are you like, don't you want them to win? I do want it's them not, to win. You're not, you're not, you're not betting money. You're not. Well, I did know, bet like, money in this case, and the Leafs making it to the Stanley Cup final, but it was ten bucks. So who why, cares? Why? You're betting against. See, this is what I hate about this new betting world. Everybody's betting against their teams or their interests or things are of that nature, and it's just like we got such a fun run here. Bet on your team, man. Go all in. Really, really, really show up for them. 
right? I, hey, I, I am happy that they're winning. I do not like setting $10 on fire. I don't like setting any money on fire, but hey, I'm wrong. Last year, I was right with the Stanley Cup predictions, unfortunately. The, well, I guess somewhat unfortunately, because the Lightning beat the Panthers, but the Avs won, and that was obviously nice. But just in general. Right. But um, I mean, every time the Panthers are in a series, I pick them to win. You do. Like, and... I, that's just why, what do I, like, I get nothing, I get no benefit if I'm, if they don't win, even if I'm right. It's like, who cares? They lost. That's a that's a fun way of looking at it. And you ended up again proving the why hockey theory correct. Got, we're not wrong just early. At yeah. least you were. I and I got every every series this round correct, which is not the normal, but I'll take it. It's not normal, but I wanted to say just we talked about the Toronto series in a way that I made some assumptions that turned out to be very not true. And again, maybe I shouldn't assume things about the Toronto Maple Leafs ever. Probably a wise idea other than that they're going to lose in the playoffs. And there's great credit due to the Panthers for picking up pretty much right where they left off against the Bruins. Because I thought at some point after you win a series like that in the way they won that series and the accomplishment of winning a series like that, that there was going to be some level of natural drop-off because there has to be. You just beat the best regular season team of all time in a crazy seven-game series, down 3-1, and they never did. But because it it was the perfect storm because they got another team that was going to have that same valve pressure release as the Panthers um, by, you know, overcoming their 19-year demon of not making it past the first round and i think this is what one you know eight you know one win out of eight in a row tries or something like that under shanahan or something crazy so in this core so um it you know it was kind of a relief because if they lost that series it was probably going to get blown up it still might get blown up in the way that florida blow it up or some other teams blow it up um and you know, but it, it it's it's funny. I, I think the video of NHL Network of Brian Boyle uh, breaking down kind of the first round is like the end of the regular season with like a little extra. You know, it's still a lot of more open teams are kind of, you know, there's a lot of teams that weren't going down the stretch. They were kind of resting up and everything. So they're kind of turning it on and it's a lot of feeling out and there's a lot more variance and up and down, but then second round, it's like the playoff started, you know, everybody's dialed in, you know, you kind of got rid of the teams that weren't ready or weren't kind of going well. And, you know, you get you get the teams all with confidence and they're all kind of used to a, a series of playoff hockey. So it kind of starts. And then, you know, every you know, the second, third and, and the final round, it's all, you know. A fight to see who can strike first. And then after that, a series of adjustments where whoever makes the best adjustments or even the last adjustment will win the series. And then it kind of starts all over again. Uh, based on your next opponent. I want to go through how I think this is different for Florida because I've been thinking about it because I said last year after they lost to the Lightning that to comfort myself and to try to find a way to explain just how badly that went, 
that in the NHL, because of the way the playoffs work, the best team in a given run doesn't often win the Stanley Cup. The best Lightning team, the 2019 team, obviously got swept in the first round. Now, I'm not saying the teams that won the Cup were bad, but they weren't quite as good as that one, for instance, right? I disagree. I disagree. Okay. I think I think people think that, like, yeah, the other Lightning team may have had better regular season success or may have had a higher talent level, but they weren't as good of a team because they couldn't play in the playoffs, because they couldn't show up when it mattered, and they couldn't do the little things and play consistently and not not blow their gasket or not lose games themselves, you know, not be play with emotion, but not play emotional. They couldn't do that. Or they couldn't sell out and block shots and, and understand that I might have to, you know, pull up the pants and and play hard nose hockey for six shifts without even getting the puck in the offensive zone. But I can't think about that. Even if I'm Steven Stamkos, even if I'm Kucherov, I just got to go out there and grind away until I get a shot. And then when I get that shot, I got to bury because it might be the only one. You know, like getting that mentality, getting it switched on and getting players that do that and maybe are more natural is why Tampa and all these other teams then go on the win. Uh, you know, and, you know, Detroit has has a long history, uh, you know, of, you know, playing high-end hockey and then, you know, under Iserman changing the way they played and then winning cups. And then that way that they played winning those cups under Eisenman transferred into the next core. And it's about understanding the sheer amount of work, commitment, and focus to win this grind of a, of a tournament. I am trying to figure out just how a Panthers team yeah. and – you're right about the way that playoff hockey is so different to the regular it's, season. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things. I mean, for the Panthers, it's the new blood. They got, a, they got a coach who, you know, for most of the season was saying the right things. He's the kind of person that keeps it calm, keeps composure, allows you to stay in games to fight back. I mean, there's obviously some things we disagree with with him. Um, but then he added the fire. Uh, you know, you could say it was the Toronto game where he blew his lid. I, you could, I could see it a little earlier or a little later, you know, being the real moments where his passion started to come through consistently and kick the core into kind of playing that way all the time. And, you know, they brought in some players who, you know, have eventually worked in the favor of pulling to that direction but more importantly, I think it's having a lot of players that are happy being a part of the system versus focused on their own thing, whether it's their contract year, whether it's their ice time or their numbers and stuff. You know, Barkov hasn't been affected by any talks of he's not scoring enough or he's not in the Con Smythe race or, you know, there was a lot of talk during the season of getting his see removed and giving it to Kachuk and all this stuff but internally he, he's getting the recognition he does he needs to to play with that confidence and not change what he's doing and that has led him to be able to take a lot of the hard minutes against Boston and Toronto and help the team move forward 
And it's things like that, you know, it all worked with luck, you know, because they could have all done all this stuff, but Pittsburgh wins an extra game. Buffalo wins an extra game. Both of them win an extra game. Uh, and it doesn't matter at all. We don't even get to see this. And maybe it doesn't even come together next year because of the break and all this stuff. But we don't have to think about it because it did come together. That's my that's my opinion. Like hockey and like a lot of this is just dumb luck. And in a copycat league where a, half the league will start following the Panthers if they win like this, or if um, you know Carolina wins or whoever wins, they're gonna just dump their their disposable money into copying that yeah it's amazing how it's a copycat league where of all of the post seasons that we follow you know this is the one that at times feels the most random however the best team in the west is in the conference final i think it was the third best team in the in the west is in the conference final I dallas think, yeah the I mean, second best team in the east and last year's president's trophy winner so it's not like these teams are scrubs they're both pretty dang no. good no i mean i think outside like if when you when you accept the avalanche having injuries i think three of the best teams in the league are in the final four i could agree with that yeah i've i've been big on dallas because i mean i i know that hints is one of the top players in the league i know that robertson is one of the top players in the league i've been saying heiskanen is is that that guy you know he's right up there with mccarr um, and he can just have incredible impact on any game and over a series. Um, and then Vegas has been good. I mean, and they got the Eichel that they paid for. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, I think they're lucking out with their goalies. I mean, when it comes to Thompson to begin the season, I mean, it doesn't matter who's in net. They play well for a while, kind of like Florida. And, uh, you know, Butch, has, Butch Cassidy has been managing the goalies well enough uh to you know keep them moving forward so i mean i i how can you be mad with these teams i mean maybe maybe florida but again that's just based on their regular season like first 60 games kind of sucking and it has nothing to do with the fact that i mean if you look at their playoff road you can't say it wasn't earned if you look at them down the stretch the last two months march and april you know you can't say that they shouldn't be here and they don't deserve to be here. Um, And even if you want to do the whole, you know, you look at their underlying numbers when they were playing better the regular season, a lot of them showed well. So like, there's just a lot of evidence to be like, yeah, if the three, if three of the best teams in the league are in the final four and then a team like Florida, that's, you know, peaking at the right times in there, something's working. And I mean, I've been a big critic of the divisional playoff format. I, I'm not saying this, validates it at all but every once in a while you can still get this good the you know good conference matchup out of it i think we've got some incredible matchups and we'll maybe touch on them a little bit later but here's my theory on the panthers and i've been trying to work it out and i've been trying to listen to some leafs podcasts that aren't ranting and raving you know that tap into the innate like fear that the toronto sports fan has because for part of me feels bad for the Maple Leafs and the other part of me <laughs> is really enjoying like the atmosphere at game three. And I want to make this point first and foremost, because I said it after the Panthers beat the Bruins to the Leafs fans who were thinking that it was going to be something like 
50% Leafs fans and Sunrise for those games. I said, look at what the arena looked like during the Boston series. And I said, that's probably what it's going to look like during the Toronto series. You can't prevent Leafs fans from showing up. Most of them live in South Florida anyway. So you weren't going to prevent them from coming. But they were going to get drowned out pretty quick. And what's the thing I have talked about as a fan? What is the most fun thing to do as a Panthers fan? It's to go to those games against Montreal, the Rangers, Leafs, any number of those teams, right? You go to the arena, you know there's going to be a lot of their fans there, and you get to laugh them out of the building after they lose to the Panthers, right? They're paying the yep. money to the Florida Panthers to keep them in South Florida, and you got to watch your team lose for extra added benefit, right? Those are the most fun nights. After all you heard in game before Game 3, all of the talk from the Leafs fans, even the ones that were kind of smart, the discussion was getting ridiculous. And it was yeah. getting very annoying. And then to watch those Leafs fans, other than a handful, get to walk out of the arena with their heads down in their hands because their team's down 3 nothing to the Florida Panthers after an overtime win where there are rats on the ice everywhere. It's probably, other than skating the cup on that sheet of ice, is probably as good as you're going to get as a fan. Maybe because I'm cynically wired and we'll that's see. how I've always thought about it. I mean, yes. Like, uh, I I'm with you. Like, my primal instincts are like, yeah, like I can eat off of beating the president's trophy, best team in history Bruins and beating the Leafs right after their highest moment, especially of this core. uh, And then taking them immediately right back down, if not further below where they were Um, like, I can eat off that forever, but then there's still Carolina. I mean, yes. I have a lot of respect for Carolina in the same way I have respect for the New Jersey Devils, but I don't want the Flyers to lose to the Devils. I don't want the Panthers to lose to the Devils, even though I respect what they've done. You know, some of the people in the front office over the years, like guys like Patrick Eliash, you know, I, uh, I, I, but in the Canes, you know, I like Rod Brindamore. I hated what he did against the Oilers in the Stanley Cup because I was pulling for the Oilers there. Um, Pronger, not, you know. That was amazing. Hemsky, too. Hemsky had a great year, unreal year. Um, and, but, you know, they've showed the model of like building a fan base in a non traditional market, making it a, a hockey market. And, you know, North Carolina, they show out for hockey. And I'm definitely here for it. And I definitely want them to have success, except when they play the Panthers. And I and I really want to. I don't want them to get another run at a cup without us getting a first crack at it. And I think, you know, they might maybe have the trump card with their defense being so good. I mean, we'll probably get more into it. Mm, uh, but will. I think, I think that they, the Panthers, have the star power to push through that and win this. And it feels more like Florida's year than Carolina's year. Carolina's had a little bit of an easier easier matchups. And they've kind of always been around and they'll be around next year. But they don't really have that, like, momentums, really, uh, I don't think. Like, in that same narrative kind of, like, underdog Cinderella story. You know, that kind of stuff in the playoffs um, does does help. I mean, we, we've, we were... We, we talked about, you know, the Marty St. Louis run that the Rangers went on and 
you know, Eric Carlson and the, the Senators run and, and stuff like that. I mean, they've yeah. been compared favorably to the 2012 Kings that got on a Jonathan Quick heater. That was an eight seed. And I saw somebody mention that they had the same exact record, 16, 18, and four, as the 2019 Blues did. So, like, you know, yeah. you could even maybe, I mean, it's a very different time in the league, but how about the 2003 Ducks? You know, they got on an all-time heater, you know? Yeah, they got an... The one thing with the Ducks, though, is they maybe have had the best defensive pairing of all time in in Niedermeyer Pronger that they just ran out there every other shift and just shoved down your throats and sometimes broke them up and just, you know, like you you would just have to play the whole game against those two. And when they were together, it was just you wouldn't even touch the puck. You'd have a whole shift, skate around, do loops, and you come back to the bench. And then, you know, you wait to go back out again. You're not touching the puck. And I think it would be great if Florida had that. And I get a little concerned that uh, they don't – Carolina doesn't necessarily have Pronger and Niedermeyer, but Burns can probably match up with what Montour is doing. And then the Panthers have no answer to Jacob Slavin. Like, Slavin is going to be – a huge key to this series and what the Florida's top three lines can do against, against him when they get out there mm-hmm. uh, and, and wonder if they're going to match, if they're going to like, you know, put the shutdown stall line against Kachuk and then save, save Slavin for Barkov's line uh, to give Ajo's line a little more help out there. Um, or if they're going to, you know, just go Slavin and, and stall on Kachuk's line, and 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 I, it's going to be interesting. Matchups are going to play more and more in a part as you go deeper in the playoffs, um, because the teams, the further you get, the more equal the teams are. It's just about how you fit and respond to the game styles and stuff like that, and how you're going to kind of check and and maneuver around your opponent. Absolutely. Um, Especially when you're playing Carolina, whose thing is hard line matching, particularly when you're in Raleigh. I want to go over a yeah. theory I have about I, this about this team, although if you want to continue on this, you can. Well, I just want to say, if, if it becomes a series of matchups, they really have to hope Lomberg is healthy and can get back to what he was at without taking penalties, because... Carolina has no forward that plays 20 minutes a night because they roll four lines so heavily. And uh, Florida does not. <laughs> Florida has, I think, four or five forwards that play 20 a night. Like Kachuk, Barkov, Reinhardt, and I think Bennett uh, play 20 a night um, or, or a little more. It, and that's it, because you, you've given me an idea line... of, a, of a player, and you mentioned it, who I think is going to be the most, possibly the most important player in the series uh, in Sam Reinhardt. But I want to get to that in a second. Because here's my theory on the Panthers just overall. And some of it's hockey, but a lot of it's psychology related. And I'm thinking about it more and more now. Last, uh, we look at the Bill Zito Panthers, the three seasons that he's been the general manager. And you look at the psychology of the teams, right? You can go back and listen to our shows and you can easily figure out what the psychology of the teams are. The 21 Panthers were completely found money 
just amazing that they got so good so quick. They played a wrecking ball lightning team. They gave them hell in the first round. They could have done a lot better, obviously. But that was a foul. Everybody was happy. They made the playoffs. The team is now on the path to being good. Last year, the Quenville situation was obviously noxious and terrible. But by the time that happened, they had already started the year with an eight-game winning streak. It was very clear they were going to make the playoffs. Of course, nobody knew they were going to be that good in the regular season. But they didn't face any pressure in the regular season. The minute they got to the playoffs, they started facing a ton of pressure. Because when you're that good and you make the moves you make, the internal pressure is very much there. And there was external pressure, as much as you can have being the Florida Panthers. And they fell under the weight of that. This regular season, after you change the coach, you trade away Jonathan Huberto, who had the most points in franchise history, beloved player. There are a lot of risks involved when you do that. And I think this team not only had growing pains on the ice and trying to adapt how they had played from a rush team to what they are now, where they can actually do multiple things, yes? They were facing a lot of pressure internally because they knew, look, if we don't do what we think we have to do this season, the questions then is, who's next? Because we changed the coach and we changed the core. So am I going to be out next? You know, and Bill Zito's obviously taking huge gambles. That's in his DNA. But then he's got to be thinking, well, there is a downside if you make huge gambles like that. And we had been talking about things in that way. Like, we weren't particularly big fans of them doing nothing at the trade deadline. Funny how you go all in in one trade deadline and you flop. And then you do nothing and now you're going on this run. I wouldn't say that we were... We weren't big fans. I I just didn't like it. I mean, because my uh, my thought was they weren't making the playoffs, so get something for Gudis because you got to start getting ass you got to get assets back. Um, but like the I I I was more a bigger fan of not Zito will luck luckily for him won't ever get criticized for not trying to improve the defense at all and this is a series where that defense is going to be tested because boston couldn't get a four check going toronto couldn't get a four check going this team in carolina is more likely and probably going to get their four check going early on in this series and so the florida breakout is going to be tested and that's where i said i was really underwhelmed by the panthers you know they're in their in-zone play has improved, so I'm less concerned about that. But I still think that moving pucks from the back end is a concern for them because they still rely so heavily on their centers. And if under pressure, Stahl, even Montour at his best, and you know Mahora, Gudis, Ekblad, Forsling, like everybody is prone to turnovers on this team when they get under pressure or when they are constantly asked to break the puck out. Um, they, they, they fatigue a bit. And we're, we're going to see that more. And it's, just, it's, you know, can Florida step up? Can they weather the storm? Can the defense, you know, level up and start breaking out pucks? They have, a lot of them have the skills and the requirements to do so. And, you know, a lot of their other games have stepped up. So why not? Um, but it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that. And that was kind of my biggest issue with, you know, the, and I don't think it was a gamble. I think Z, 
I think Zito just was like, there's, I don't think there's anything we can do about the defense. So I'm not really terribly going to do anything about, we're just going to ride Mark Stahl for the leadership points and the consistency points. And they did, it worked out. So good on them. I mean, but I think you're right as far as, and a lot of writers, especially in the lens of Toronto have been writing about this of the boldness of Zito and sends a message and that message energizes and motivates the team. Uh, Zito was bold in making moves and then bold in not making moves. And the team, the staff have responded exactly as Zito thought they would or hope they would. I mean, Zito goes into the locker room to say, Hey boys, we're not doing anything on the deadline. I believe in this team. Let's go. It could have, you know, he's hoping it, 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 it brings the team up. He's hoping that confidence results in wins on the ice. And it did. So that, that's a gamble. And that boldness, you know, translates onto the ice. Now, you know, can they keep that going? And when something bad happens about to Carolina or in the Carolina series, can they, can they respond? Can they be bold? Can they not be passive? Um, with the lead, can they not be passive when they're down in a series? Can they, you know, be aggressive, be on their toes, and keep pushing their game, their the way they want to play against Carolina? I think this is going to be the biggest tactical challenge. And the Panthers beat the Bruins and the Maple Leafs because once they got into the playoffs, I think they recognized that they had just, you know, the Rasputin jokes I kept making. They had had their fingernails on the cliff. They were about to fall off, but they pulled themselves back up every time, and they got in. So the pressure eventually sort of released itself. And then I think whatever happened between Game 4 and Game 5 of the Boston series, I think they recognized we don't have any pressure on us. We had all of our pressure in the regular season. We overcame that. We know we can beat these guys. Let's make them nervous. Because at some point, maybe some of the players who were there last year and understood what it means to be a President's Trophy winner in the playoffs, having a historic-type regular season, Boston obviously to an incredible degree, pounce on them. And the way the Panthers play, I think, exacerbates some of that because... They're really aggressive, and they're aggressive no matter what happens. The Panthers don't play, like, they can be passive at times, we've seen it, but they are an aggressive team by nature. And even when they were struggling, they didn't really change that. You know, that's just in their DNA. Not only are they aggressive on the rush, but now they have an aggressive forecheck because you have Matthew Kachuk, and you have Sam Bennett looking like Sam Bennett again. And the Bruins couldn't deal with that because not only did the pressure get to them, but the Panthers' style of play speeds you up. And we talked about this when we were previewing the Boston series, that the Bruins don't have the same level of athletes that the Panthers did, particularly on the back end. And eventually, well, they just got... You know what I meant, right? I mean, I don't know if I ever want to say that they don't have the athletes. Well, a, a different kind of athletes, but I, I mean, think, like, makes sense. I, I mean, but they have Charlie McAvoy. I mean, they have... They do. Carlo isn't bad. I mean, like... Uh, Grizzly, you know, isn't, ter- you know, and I, I think, I think 
for me, it's not so much about pressure because they came in with no pressure. I mean, that was like the first thing they said as soon as the playoffs were is like no pressure. That's before they even played a game. I think it was more just the they they had the belief, they had the accountability, they were pushing, they were they were seeing the results of their work, and it's easier to keep working when you're seeing that. And so, you know, when things went bad, they just kept at it. And they said, if we lose, we lose. But we're just going to keep playing this, this way. You know, the coach is happy that we're playing this way. The general manager is happy we're playing this way. We enjoy it. We're having fun. If we win, we win. You know, we're doing the things to win. And doesn't matter if we're down 3-1 or 4-1 or whatever in the game. We're just going to keep pushing. And, you know, I think that is, that's something that I've been waiting for the Panthers to have. And maybe that's why I'm so focused on it. But, like, it is something that every hockey team that I played on, every other hockey team in the NHL, you know, strives for. Like, to, to be that consistent, to play hard, to play the to the team game, to to be all about the long-term goal and know that the process will get you to the results to, you know, be in a, be on a team where you, you like each other, you work well together, you communicate. I mean, I think we saw a huge change in the communication from the beginning of the year to the end of the year where games and the bench felt silent, especially in the middle of the year. And then January, February, March, April, now, you hear a lot more talk. You hear a lot more chatter. Uh, and I think they've definitely stepped up more and been more in posts and pregame quotes and stuff, been more um, illuminating on their and, and showing an understanding of, you know, the team ethos and, and, and game plan moving forward. And, I mean, it's just been great. It, it, it seems like a team that's actually focused on winning the Stanley Cup and and doing the right things to get there. And, you know, they're just they're they seem hungry. They seem committed and they seem seem determined. It's, it's like that's my favorite thing about this run um, is seeing like an actual competitive playoff hockey team that, you know, if they do this the expectations and the standards of this fan base are going to be risen very quickly because it's going to be about getting back to the second and third rounds every year um, and, and continuing to chip away for the cup. Um, and if they get a cup, get another one because I, I think they're finally taking that next step of the culture of winning is now getting on the ice. The habits are getting on the ice. They're coming through and they're showing results up and down the roster. Do you know what's amazing about this run in particular is not just the players, and I want to highlight a couple of them in a second, but mostly, how about Paul Maurice himself? Like, we're all watching these games, and he's getting the in-game interviews with Darren Pang or Don Moore in the second round, and it looks like he's cutting promos. It's incredible the kind of Demeter he has and the way he's going about his business like he'll criticize the refs we saw him go after the refs but with the players he's basically saying like they're calling out the plays that's 
I'm just tapping them on the shoulder. Yeah, that's exact. I mean, that's what he was hired for, and that's what we said we liked about him is he does know how to speak. He does know how to talk the talk. It's just about could he walk the walk and could he do the things, and there's some things, you know, that scare me. You know, Mark Stahl, around 20 minutes, scares me. Um, and some of the, the things, but, you know, largely, I think he's found the right, right balance of all the different emotions and all the different jobs of a coach and the players have made it easier for him to do that and focus on that by taking away the, having the, you know, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to stir up the lines as much. He doesn't have to try to figure out how to make things go or teach the systems or make sure people are understanding what's expected of him. Now he's just about how can I keep this firing? How can he's doing the brunette job? You well, know, but this is something he, I wanted to bring up doing, because I was thinking doing, about it and I'm glad you brought it up because this is what Andrew Brunette should have done, but was not capable yes, of doing. Absolutely. And it's why the devils announced today that they're bringing back Lindy Ruff because Lindy Ruff at least has the years of experience that everyone says the Devils players didn't have, and that's why they faltered. And you, I don't know if one year behind the helm seeing Lindy Ruff pull the strings is enough to hand it off to Burnett to run at the extra mile. I think you know Ruff's going to have to get them through at least another season or two um, before kind of fading into the background uh, on that team. Maurice, you know, getting back to him, uh, it's we we talked about you know how important Pronger was on the Flyers run in 2010, doing the gamesmanship stuff, stealing the pucks, doing you know he was managing the narrative, you know Maurice is working the refs, he's saying the right things in the interviews in the game, he's saying the right things after and stuff, he's bringing up and building up the right players. And, you know, the team, like, that is such an important part of, it's like game management. It's, you know, it's it's like managing the puck well and everything. It's just about keeping the vibes and keeping the team going in the right way. Um, and also, you know, it's important to work the refs. It's important to kind of, uh, you know, be on the bench and let your players hear you take the shots at the refs, hear, you know, hear you yelling at the refs because then they're not worried about it. They're like, all right, he's got this. He's fuming. I'm just going to go worry about playing hockey, keeping my stick down. And, uh, you know, for the most part, they've been able to do that. Yeah. And I think that he has used every bit of the 28 years of experience or however long it is, 28 seasons of coaching experience for this run. Like, this is where all of that experience comes in. We have disagreed with him on systemic things that he likes to do that we d we're not fans of. You know, in the regular season, we saw evidence of why, you know, it might. It's hard to do that over an 82-game regular season. But in the playoffs, we saw, and it's funny how he was not even particularly a great playoff coach, but the kinds of things that he's done in this postseason has melded with this team pretty perfectly. And whether that's because the dressing room 
is particularly strong, which we always heard for the last couple of years. This is a strong dressing room. It's not what's going on in Winnipeg. And maybe the fact that they are an underdog, but also they just have such strong personalities in a way that, you know, in in the right way, like Matthew Kachuk and Alexander Barkov's personality is strong in a different way that Pierre Lebrun piece talking about, you know, finished chocolates and all that, which was great to see, obviously. Uh, I don't eat chocolate, but if I did eat chocolate, I would eat finished chocolate. All of that, I think, has played a role in just getting the balance right. It's what good coaches and coaches with experience that use that experience in the right way have figured out. Whether they gain it on their own, like a John Cooper or a Jared Bednar, or whether it's somebody like Paul Maurice who can bring it with him and knows because he's seen absolutely everything from coaching when he was my age and our age to now that's the kind of experience that we wanted to see from him, and he's become a better coach in the playoffs. I looked at um, Sheldon Keefe saying during the Leafs' breakup day that we didn't expect the series to be as fast as it did end up. He got outcoached by Paul Maurice without a puck being dropped. Jim Montgomery eventually had to concede, essentially, that Cousins Bennett Kachuk was going to do whatever it wanted as a line and that he had to do whatever he could to tilt the ice when they were off it. Like, he outcoached two coaches who we have great respect for. I thought Jim Montgomery would have been a coach that I wanted in Florida last this time last year. And I kept thinking to myself, well, if the Leafs are going to fire Sheldon Keefe, I would like him to come to Florida. I like the way the Leafs play. I think they do things yeah. the right way. Yes, yes. But this is going to be a huge task for him. Not only is it a good coach, it's a good coach who learned under Maurice. So he's going to know a lot of the old tricks or he's going to know kind of a framework that Maurice likes to work in and how he responds to things and this and that. So it's going to be a juggernaut. I mean, Jim Montgomery was somebody I thought would have been a good hire for the Panthers, uh, or at least be somebody that I would want to talk to and see, you know, see what the fit was like. I think he did a pretty good job with Boston, but he, he just, couldn't make that last adjustment. I thought he did a lot better adjusting and being ready off the hop for the Panthers than Keefe. I really do. I, I think I don't I don't know if he so much got out coached other than, you know, he as in like he got out coached because of something wrong. Like, you know, it just kind of happens. Like he just lost. I, I, I think he just lost the some of the matchup battles. Uh, Bergeron and Krejci coming back, they weren't the same. Uh, Pasternak kept getting shut down, so even if you know he got Pasternak out in the right spots, it wasn't really working for him. Um, and the, he to make the concessions to try to get them out in the right spots, Bertuzzi and Hall stopped getting those nice minutes and easier minutes, and they dropped off a cliff. It was, you know, it, it's tough. Uh, I don't. I, I know there was a lot of Boston fans that thought Montgomery coached himself out of coming back, or you know, gave him a shorter lease, leash next year. I don't know. I I I definitely wouldn't read too much into it. But with Keith, you know, there's a lot of first rounds he's been outdueled. There's a lot of uh, I think videotape of this this Leafs team not making adjustments, not being find ways to, to step up. I, I thought 
at some point Keith was gonna do a little more. Um, you know, try something different. Uh, try to try to get them to, you know, get up the ice quicker, or try to get the D to get rid of pucks quicker, to to just get the puck out of the zone to get around the forecheck. Um, and and there just really wasn't anything. And then the quotes on are, are brutal. They sound like brunette, where it just seems like. Yeah, like like you said, it was over before the a puck dropped, and he was just already out coached, and he was just shocked into not doing anything. I wonder if he thought that, you know, he was just a Matthews goal away from everything being okay. So don't make changes, don't make changes. You know, Matthew gets the goal, he starts rolling. We don't have to do anything. You know, give some Florida another thing to think about, et cetera. And it never came. He kept hitting a post or getting a shot blocked or whatever. I mean. But- what was so funny to me in that series was, is I think he attempted to adjust, but like they were half-hearted adjustments. Like he went to 11 and seven because in the first two games in 12 and six, they couldn't really move the puck all that well. So he brings in 11 and seven and yeah. so he just added another bad defenseman and it didn't really work in game three. I thought that the Leafs actually slowed the game down pretty decently, but as Jack Hahn pointed out, who was having a, a killer series in pointing out all of the tactical things that were going on. They basically just did the lobby lock and the Panthers skated through it by the end of the game. So like, yeah, the because Leafs... the one, one thing the Panthers are good at is skating through traffic and making passes across the blue line on sides. Like I think, I think it was either Corey or, or Jack or, or somebody brought that up. I, I'm really sorry. I can't give the proper credit to who it was, but that the Panthers are really good at zone entries of like breaking the four across the blue line and stuff, especially on the power play. Like they can make those passes in stride across the blue line without going off sides pretty regularly through traffic. And it's, it's huge for them. It's going to be a lot harder. And that's to get the, Carolina. The, the, the foundation of the last couple of years where they got really good at zone entries. They dumped the puck in a lot more than they used to, but it's not as if they suddenly got bad at that kind no, of zone and, entry. And I wouldn't say it's a dump in. I would say it's their hard wraps trying to just get around to that winger so the winger can just pick it off the boards and keep going downhill. Um, their target is soft spots like chip and chase. Um, or, you know, a lot of things that we saw in this, a lot of dumps and, and plays deep into the zone I saw in the Toronto series, which I like it was targeted at like Liljegren. Like I'm just going to put, I can't put this anywhere, but I'm going to put this in a spot where Liljegren's going to have to turn his back, go behind the net. And we're going to have two guys on him. Instead of just banking around the boards and not knowing where that puck's going to go, I'm going to put it in a spot where I know they're going to get the puck. And then we, and all, everybody's going to know what they're going to do with it, where they're going. And we're going to shut them down. And that, that's kind of like, a lot of the neutral zone locks and stuff, they give you the puck and they give you the path where they want you to go and then they close the valve and shut it off. And I think, you know, that sort of thinking beyond the first player, thinking beyond where the puck is right now, is a huge element Florida added that they could have used last year with that stack team to really go far. They didn't have it. Now they have it and they're showing you know, 
that sort of chess level of thinking that you need to be having at a high pace, quick level um, in the playoffs while, you know, being ready to get your head taken off. They they certainly did that, and they picked on that Leafs defense. Like, they basically conceded, yeah. okay, Morgan Riley, you can do whatever you want. And, good and good for we, you, but we're going to pick on everybody else. And they did. What have we been saying for years? Be as annoying as the Lightning. You know, be as annoying as the Kings were when they were winning. Be as annoying as the Blues were that one playoff run. Like, you know, teams that win the Cup or go to the Cup are usually annoying, chippy, never leaving you alone sort of teams. Um, and teams that do stuff after the whistle, get up in your face and everything. I mean, look at Vegas. Vegas has been that way since their inception. They get players who play that way, like Petrangelo and and he you know Pacioretty. He should have been suspended for more than a game, obviously. But nah, no, sorry. Well, anyway, sorry. they gave a two-minute penalty to somebody getting intentionally hit from behind and he fractured his neck. Andrew Cogliano needs more respect. He should have been an Ironman. He should have, you know, this this is a guy who deserves a lot more respect. He's a cup winner, Ontario boy. And uh, the fact that he, I, I really thought one day someone's going to break their neck or, or, you know, get really hurt on the hit from behind and we're going to start doing the Brian Burke bear hug rule. Or some, you know, make a, a real change. Nothing. They didn't even give it a five minute. Unreal. I'm. That was I, also I'm pretty sure egregious. Let's be fair. But like, you know, what what do you want Petrangelo to do when Kane keeps going after him after the whistle and t- making s- those same slashes on his wrist, going after his face, his jaw, his neck after the whistle, like end of period. Going, you know, taking five strides after the big horn goes at the end of the period to go up to him and and get his cross check into his jaw, and no penalty, you know, like nothing. They don't even like talk about it. Oh, prison rules. You know, this is what's going to happen when you do that. And so Petrangelo made a point, and it worked. And that's going to happen. It it happens all the time, and people who lose their mind out of this would be shocked at what these guys are talking on the ice and saying to each other and, and are, would be shocked at all the slashes and stuff that they don't see on camera and, you know, the stuff that they're not seeing in the scrums and stuff after the whistle. Um, and that, that's playoff hockey. And I personally think that's what makes it great. Uh, I, I don't disagree with you in many ways, but uh, Twitter but not like Twitter is a great example. Yeah. This does. Uh, let's talk about just keys <laughs> to this series because this is a very interesting tactical series. You got made a ton of good points. And I want to make this point that I've noticed about Caroline in these playoffs that is fascinating to me in five of their last six series. This is post bubble. They have gone up two games to none. Both. They have had home ice in every one of these series. They've gone up two games to none. The only one they did, it was Tampa in 21. And that was the one of the series they lost. In all of those series, they either, they're going to win close, but the game isn't really that close. It feels like Carolina's dominant, or it's like the games against New Jersey where they just kick the snot out of you. And the Panthers' history in Raleigh is pretty bad, and I don't think the Panthers have matched up particularly well in this era against the Hurricanes. You remember the, the Central Division year, they were... They won two games against the Hurricanes, but they were both in overtime. They really struggled against them. 
And this year, the Hurricanes were the only team to shut them out in like over two calendar years. They they don't match up particularly I, well against Carolina. I agree. The only thing I'll say is the reason I always said that they didn't is because Carolina played a good team playoff style game, at least through the neutral zone. They blunt, you know, they made it impossible for Florida to score, and Florida usually gives up a lot of goals. So, you know, it's not going to work out. Um, but I think Florida's evolved from that. We, they've played Carolina once since, you know, down the stretch, and that was kind of last game of the year. There's a lot of reasons to throw that out the window. Uh, so I agree with you. I think, you know, the home ice Carolinas has a little advantage with that. But this is a Florida team where I don't think the history is going to get to them. Just because it, they have confidence and they have the assuredness of they're a new breed of, of Panthers. At least they have won the, six straight road playoff games. Yeah. That's I mean, incredible. And just the fact that they've won more than two games in a row in the playoffs is frankly surprising to me. Seven of eight. Right? They've won seven of eight yeah. and, and in the playoffs. It's not going to continue like this forever, obviously. But, you know, I think that they have a real good chance. The goal is there's the first four, the first, you know, there's two games in Carolina. You want to be in every period, as many shifts as possible in both of those games and come out one and one at the worst. You know, that's your goal. Go out, play good road hockey, keep that crowd as quiet as possible, keep them frustrated, play your game, survive, and bring it back home, at, you know, with your best result possible. And here is my point on that. Because when you look at the games, the game three road games for the Hurricanes after they do all of the good stuff at home, this year, in their Game 3 road games, they've gotten their butts whooped. It took a while against the Islanders, but they lost 5-1, to one, melted down at the end. 8-4 against New Jersey speaks for itself. Last year, against the Rangers and the Bruins, they go on the road for Game 3, up two games to none, and all that hard line matching that Ron Brindamore does, you can't do it when you don't have last change, and the House of Cards falls down. So, your point on getting one in Raleigh is really well taken. Because if they do that and form holds, I'm not saying it will, but if they're able to play the kind of game three that we've seen the Hurricanes play, then you got a really good chance to go up two games to one. Yeah. And now everything shifts over to Carolina to adjust back. Because yeah. in these series, now Carolina's played very good game fours on the road, unlike last year where they played terrible game fours on the road and you're back to 2-2. Two, two. But it's really different... When you're up two games to one and you've got the home ice as opposed to Carolina who still has the home ice, the pressure's still on you to hold serve at home. And the Panthers have not been quite as good at home this postseason as many of us would have suspected. So if you're up two games to one heading into game four and the pressure now is on Carolina to adjust in a way that they haven't had to in a situation like this, in any of these postseasons, other than the series against Tampa in 21 where they were going to lose anyway. That, to me, is where Florida can really get an advantage. So that's why I'm saying, obviously, if you get 2 nothing, it's crazy, but I don't think that's going to happen because it's the Hurricanes. But if you get one in Raleigh, and the Game 3 form continues the way we've seen in these last six series pretty much for Carolina, 
you've got a chance to put them under a ton of pressure in that game four, and that's when the Panthers thrive. When the other team's got all the pressure and that starts to weigh on them a little bit, that's when Florida's pounced. And that's yeah. where I think, get one of the two. It doesn't matter which one. Even if you get blown out in one of the games, which is possible because the uh, Hurricanes can do that, as long as you are in it to win it and you get one, then the series can be played on your terms if you do what I think they can do in game three. You got to fight. At, you, you Obviously, if they get blown out, I'm going to be like, it's okay. Put it, you know, burn the tape. Keep moving forward because that's, you know, what has Florida's done successfully and been, you know, been a big reason why they keep winning is when they do have a bad game, it doesn't build and go into the next game, which unfortunately for too long in Florida's history, it has this regular season. Yeah. It was happening all the time. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's nice, but you got to keep games close. You, you're the only team that hasn't really been in a series where there's been a blowout game in all the playoffs. You know, that is a huge, huge help to Florida. They're always in it. They always feel like they're in it. They're always wearing down on teams. Uh, when it's 7-3, it's really hard, or, you know, 5-1 or whatever. It's really hard to be punishing. It's really hard to, you know, exact your will and be intimidating. So they got to they gotta get away. They got to get out of Carolina without getting blown out. That's my thought. Uh, more of the keys. We talked about the fourth line and and uh, it has to be usable. Yeah. It has to be it, it has, has to, to be, be put in a position where Paul Maurice can actually trust them that they're yeah. not gonna get sunk. Well, I mean, it's it's gonna make his job easier because if not, then he's gonna have to work harder to line match and keep up with Brindamore because Brindamore is gonna have more options more lines, more fresh bodies to go. And, you know, he can be kind of rope-a-dope. Maurice can kind of be rope-a-dope by the four lines. I mean, you got Martin Hook going at like a 30-goal pace over the playoffs. Like He was and, the first player to ever do that after having no points in the first series of the playoffs. I mean, yeah. maybe it's an all-time shooting right. percentage bender, but, like, that's what yeah. the Hurricanes can but, do. Yeah, I mean, and that's what having, you know, four strong lines can do. And, you know... It seems like Dalpy's the one coming out for Lomberg. Uh, I Correct know a lot decision. Of people, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. It doesn't. I don't think it terribly matters. Someone's got to come out for Lomberg, but you know, it's more about can Eric Stahl tread water a little better? Does giving him better line mates make that easier? Uh, you know, and I, I think, but more importantly finding better times to get them onto the ice when they've been on the ice they've gotten caught out against first lines they've gotten caught out against second lines and it's ended up in the back of the net you know carolina uses a, a, their third and fourth lines heavy you got to make sure especially at home that's when you're getting the fourth line out if if Stepan and Stastny and and uh, Drury beat you on that fourth line, okay. But if you're if you if you know Aho, if Sebastian Ajo is running train on the on the fourth line a couple times, it's going to be it could be the difference in the series because Carolina's not going to give up much, and if Florida plays the way we want them to play, they're not going to give up much. Everything's going to be contested. Every goal is going to matter, and some goals are going to probably be overturned. So. 
or upheld after a challenge or, you know, like, so it's going to be, it's going to, every shift is going to be so heavy in both physical forms, but also in the way it can shift momentum and the trajectory of a series. I mean, this is the third round. This is, this is crazy. This is going to be awesome. It's going to be the bur- the the best or the worst, you know, next two weeks of your life because it's just going to be uh, – I can't wait. The break has been killing me. Can we play it's, it's been a long five days, almost six, by the time you listen to this. Yeah. Here's the other key for me in this series that I, I want to mention. Because if we're assuming that Jordan Stahl is going to get either Kachuk or Barkoff's line, Sebastian I'm Ajo, guessing. I'm guessing wrong. Kachuk. That's, that's probably the right guess, I would say. And then Ajo probably gets Barkoff, and we're just talking about home games. So, I think what about... Maurice is going to like that matchup too, to be honest with you. Um, because if it's me, I don't, I want a slower line going with Kachuk to help, help mask his foot speed. And Stahl is a checker. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily want, I don't know. I think that line can, can take and beat any coverage when they're on. But I, I, I think that Stahl matchup, I'm not scared of it. Um, because if if Stahl gives Kachuk a lot of the attention, Bennett is going to be skating all over the place. And Cousins is hot right now. Um, so, you know, I'm not worried about it. If Stahl takes Bennett, uh, and t- you know, I, I think they're going to still be able to find room out there. Here, um, here's my, here's my and offensive I, key to that is... Yeah. If you're going to say Stahl's on Kachuk or Barkov and Ajo's on the other, what about that third line, which I think has been the Panthers' most consistent line and arguably was their best line in the Toronto series? Does do the, do the Hurricanes have an answer for that line, Lundell, Losterainen, and Reinhardt? I guess we'll... Because guess that we'll line, to me, you they don't do crazy things. But their consistency is always there. You've got three really solid defensive players. You know, Reinhardt's been getting a lot of defensive zone assignments, a lot of D-zone draws. Maurice really trusts him in this kinds of position. We're seeing Reinhardt play yeah. a little bit more penalty kill now. He, yeah, he's... In Maurice's book, Reinhardt is the number three most trusted forward. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and I guess you'd say 3B, uh, if it's an off... You know, with, with Verhage... But, I mean, the, like, there's a reason Reinhardt, for the first couple games, led the forwards in ice time. You know, he, do, he takes those draws on that right side. He, you know, he blocks a lot of shots, very good defensively, can play the wing, can play center, good at breaking out pucks, you know, smart on the forecheck. Uh, so there's a lot there to like. Um, it's going to be interesting how this all shakes out. I think, you know, another key is, you know, obviously special teams would be a huge of importance, but overlooking special teams, how Florida is able to get through the neutral zone. If they can get through the neutral zone without much delay, without broken up pucks and everything, they can effectively shut off the avenue of Carolina's offense. Just in the same way as if the Carolina defense can get around the forecheck of the Florida Panthers, Florida's going to have to start thinking more clearly on how they're going to score. 
So if they can get through the neutral zone against this Carolina D, you're going to force Carolina to find ways to score. And that's always been the Hurricanes' Achilles heel in the playoffs. That's why they can't get over the proverbial hump because they just don't find the goals when they need them towards the end. You know, they won the cup because Rod Brindamore scored all those goals. He's on the bench now. He can't score all those goals. Uh, and so. two of their best three offensive forwards are uh, not available. And the third of the fourth in Tara Vinen, I don't know how healthy he is. And the thing that is the difference for Florida is when they have a moment where they know they need somebody to make a play, they've got four or five or six forwards who can go out there and make a play. You know what I mean? And they got guys that they can throw out in a key moment, and they're like, we know he can go do something. You know, it's usually Verhage that does that. He leads the league in 5-on-5 points and 5-on-5 goals in the playoffs because, of course, he does. This is just who he is. And that is an X factor in this series. That's a huge X factor in this series. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, when I look at Verhage's goal totals and point totals, to me, it is... The it is team goals, it's team points. I mean, it's the coach putting them out in the opportunities with the line mates, and it's a more you know, Edmonton's basically like pass to McDavid, pass to Dreisaitl, um, and, and that's what they do. The Panthers kind of set up, and they you know, Verhage's their shooter in the big moments a lot of the times, and they work their ass off to create opportunities for him. And, you know, not everybody gets points on those, but uh, there's, you know, Verhage is allowed to play a certain style, and especially in overtimes late in games when they really need to push to hang out. And he's so good at, like, he looks like he's, like, not even engaged in the play, like, with the way he holds his stick and, like, he kind of looks like he's got a lot of slack in his arms and stuff. And then he, all of a sudden he's just, like, bam gone you know because a puck just goes in the right area or he make he's able to get a stick on it or he gets a pass or something his two goals in so, uh, the series against the maple leafs game one and game five were just were like that he just pounced he read the play yeah. perfectly and he found himself some some space yeah and the other thing that I, I i would have said is obviously special teams was a worry for me going into the Toronto series, but they outscored Toronto's power play. And some of that was because just penalties weren't being called, and that benefits Florida, because the more it's five-on-five, five, the better they can be. But I think you don't worry as much about their specialty teams as much anymore, because the power play is executing now. You know, But is they, it going to execute against the Is it going to execute against there? the Hurricanes? I don't think it's got to be really great. You just can't give up back-breaking, shorthanded goals or momentum-changing power plays, obviously. Like, what Carolina does on their penalty kill, they change the momentum of games almost all the time, or momentum yeah. shifts because of the way they operate on <laughs> I their think, power play, on the penalty I, kill. This is going to be a little... Um, I This is going to be against what I believe in, but I think if Florida starts having trouble on the power play, I want to see power play to get more minutes um and then go after the penalty go right back with a barkov line um because i think two things are happening one you have carter verhage off the top power play he needs more power play time ekblad's playing really well doesn't hurt to give him more power play time and you keep montour and kachuk out there anyway 
Um, so then, you know, you know, loss training. I mean, there's a lot of guys who can contribute on that PP too. They're meat and potatoes. They control pucks. They skate well. It's not a liability to put them on the ice, even against the Hurricanes. But then when the penalty's over, you can throw out Bennett, Barkov, you know, like an amalgamation of lines, and those guys are rested, and they can keep that momentum from that power play going. So you don't have those power plays where you maybe didn't get shots off or the shots didn't hit the net or you didn't score and you really needed one, but you can still keep going downhill because you're you're pushing your offensive guys right after. What usually happens is they go to like a third line or an Eric Stahl like mashup line after a power play, and the offensive guys of the other team that sit during a penalty kill and rest up get right on the ice and push the, push the play the other way. And that's where the momentum can really switch. So that's an area where I'd like Maurice to be a little more proactive and get on that because, you know, the power play one is clicking. The power play two has the ability to click and, and hold down possession. And uh, then, you you know, you can come right back out after a power play and keep it going and maybe draw another power play because – you might get a tired unit out there that can't get a change, especially in the second period. I like your your point here because what Carolina's momentum killing penalty kill usually does is you do a little bit of good work, you get that power play, and then they just frustrate you with the aggressiveness, right? They're on you, they're in your face all the time. And then the momentum changes, and now they're right back at you forechecking you, and you're stuck in your own zone, and that's a killer. If you can get somebody like Barkov on, that probably doesn't happen. Because Alexander Barkov, you know, his numbers in this postseason aren't great in terms of expected goals, things of that nature, but it doesn't really matter because not a lot's going to happen terrible when he's on the ice. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason why Matthews had no goals in that series and Marner had one. Because Barkov did what he did. They're like, we'll give you the shots. I don't care. We'll maybe even give you a good shot, but you're not going to dominate. It's just yeah. you're, we're not but, allowing that to happen. I mean, let's let's be honest. Barkov's stats are not as bad as people are saying. No, he doesn't have three even strength points, Dom, and and the athletic. You're you're using janky NHL SAP numbers. Uh, he has seven even strength points, but also. Um, I mean, like the takeaways, the, 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 uh, like he kills momentum. He's his, he physically absorbs a lot. It breaks up a lot of plays, um, you know, that don't even look before they even start, you know, in the neutral zone or he'll kill a cycle and start a breakout before the cycle really gets going. Where if he didn't do that, it might be another 10, 15 seconds in the zone and instead of, you know, getting a, a rush on your breakout, you're chipping and chasing, or I mean, you're chipping and getting off the ice because you're done your shift. So, like, there's a lot of plays like that that, you know, unfortunately, even expected goals against and stuff in these defensive metrics that are better than not having data at all don't always compute that well, don't always account for that well. Um, and there's, like... The, if you want a better Ryan O'Reilly, if you want a Patrice Bergeron, a Kopitar, these are the guys that win cups. These are the guys that allow the team to do what they can. That's what Barkov's doing. And Barkov's doing that 
from usually behind the defenseman too, because a lot of the defensemen, even Mark Stahl, are going downhill or def- what's called nowadays defending up ice, where instead of just leaving the blue line and backing up and keeping a tight gap and being aggressive with your stick, you're actually moving forward, taking time and space away, breaking up plays, getting a body on, and knowing that your spot's going to be filled. And, and that allows the forecheck to do what it does because Bennett has stepped up defensively, because Barkov and Lundell are who they are, uh, and you have Reinhardt out there. Kachuk has got has started to get a lot better defensively. Um, there's still some areas with the puck I wish he was a little smarter in or, or just kind of took, took the simpler pass. But, you know, compared to where he was in Calgary in the beginning of the year, where he even himself said, you know, the next level is defensively for him. Um, you know, they're getting that they're getting that competitiveness and that compete filling filling back, uh, not just back checking, but filling back lanes before it even becomes a back check, you know, just to, to limit odd man rushes. Um, and, you know, I just it I think if they can keep doing that, they're going to be a good alteration of what Carolina as a team defensively does. Mm -hmm. Carolina is different. They're man to man. They're a little more aggressive in the neutral zone and stuff. And they, they don't hold the line as much offensively, but they shut down a lot more defensively in the neutral zone. Uh, It's going to be great. It's, I can't wait for this, man. Uh, Why are we waiting? I uh, thank you, NHL. Uh, As we do a quick prediction for here, my, my head is telling me, to probably pick Carolina, and then my heart's like, no, this is the run, so go Panthers. I, yeah, come on, man. If, if you don't know now, you won't ever know. But it has to... It Like, at this point, they've done everything they can to make you believe, and yes, they're not perfect. If they, you know, whether they win the Cup or not, the same thing, I'm going to be asking for the same things in the offseason. I'm going to be saying they need to get better at this and that, and they need to get you know, this type of defenseman and, and fill in here and improve there. And, you know, this is what they need to build off of because they did it really well and all that stuff. But, you know, it's it's all just a ride now. And uh, I hope that they keep the compete, the hunger to push through. I hope that, you know, it's going to be six or seven games that they oh, win. Oh, I think this series. is six or seven easily. And, and, you know, you're just hoping hoping for Dallas. <laughs> I, th- I, because I don't, I don't even want Vegas to have a chance of winning a cup before Florida gets another, another crack at it. You know, suffer, suffer a little bit, Vegas, Seattle. You know, suffer, um, and then maybe we'll let you have a cup. But good starts, good starts. Uh, the expansion, the expansion draft now have shown that with all the data available, with with the talent level available in goalies and skaters with the ability to plug and play young players more, um, the benefit of being able to pick your team all at once and align it all in a plan up and down to the coach and the front office and everything is a huge help because everybody's pulling in the right direction. Everything fits. You're getting players that fit into your system and you can make the tweaks from there. And, and uh, you know even if you make mistakes or if you really push all in and trade a lot of chips like Vegas has, you can continually rinse and repeat uh, because you kind of 
have your mojo, your identity and everything going and everybody's on, on the same page. Yep. Uh, as I said, my head is telling me Hurricanes and then my heart's telling me Panthers in six or seven. So that's what I'm going to go with. My uh, head and my heart are saying Panthers in, se- in seven. Oh, that would be that would be incredible. That would be incredible. I think most people are just like a long, fun, intense series, and that's what I think we're going to get. Two other things before we yeah. get out of here: we have to talk about Keith Jones and the Flyers uh, briefly, and then we're going to talk about Bedard. The Keith Jones at the Flyers thing, we were texting about it. It's really funny how Keith Jones, president of hockey operations for the Philadelphia Flyers, has found enough time to commentate on this series for TNT. So I wonder what his pre-scout's going to look well, like for the players he wants to get this offseason. I'm going to say this. I respect Keith Jones a lot. I think it says a lot about him that he wants to finish his commitment to TNT. You know, I think I think he says a lot of the same the things right in the same way that Maurice does, in the same way a John Davidson president type does. He's going to be media savvy. He's going to have an understanding of how the league works, how teams work. Uh, you know, he's he definitely has an idea of what the Flyers want to do and what the Flyers want to be. Um, and I don't really dislike a lot of what he's saying. He's saying his biggest focus is an advanced elite back end. Love it. You know, he wants to try to be a new age, but keep the workman lunch pail type of play that the Flyers old school guard likes. You know, it's not going to be the Broad Street Bullies, but it's going to be, you know, that same working, working mentality. Um, I think, you know, he's advocating for the strength of this structure really well. If you saw him on NHL, uh, his interview on NHL Network or Sirius or whatever yesterday, um, he also did one with Frank Saravalli where he said a lot of the same things, um, which is, you know, Torts and Briere are going to shape and form this roster with, you know, under his kind of consult. And, you know, it's different. It's new. It's bold to to have coaches have more of that roster control and input. Um, and, you know, but he said he's not beholden. He says, you know, there's going to be arguments. There's things that he's going to do differently than what Torts or, you know, Briere and everybody might want to do. Um, and there's, you know, it seems like the structure, the character, the the idea is right. But my instinct, my gut says, I don't know about this process. The more I find out about this process, the more it came down to they never interviewed anybody for the GM spot ever, period. And... The, the the who they interviewed for the president's job was such a limited amount of people that Keith Jones was by and nothing against Keith Jones but he's by far the best candidate out of you know Eddie O or you know some of the other names around there um, but former flyers didn't they just say they wanted to get away from that didn't, that you know, was that was my biggest takeaway. That was and, my biggest takeaway. And you know that's going to be hard. And I'm at the point where it's like I I want to like them. Like if it's Danny Breer and Keith Jones who brings us back, I'll love it. That'll be great. But they're going to have to. I mean, 
and no fault of their own. It's the old guard and you know the organization that has lost the faith, not so much these two people. But it's not just going to take a good draft in June. It's not just going to take a good year next year or or the go, the plan going to going you know everything going according to plan next year getting another good draft pick building the right way etc um it's going to take multiple years of hey these guys are walking the walk they're backing up what they said here are these defensemen you can see it growing and evolving over time and there's been no big step backs there's been no big disappointments there's been no big whiffs these guys aren't frittling away things. Um, you know, it's going to take a while. And so that means they have a while to earn back trust. It's going to be a hard rebuild because they've got a yep. lot of contracts they got to get rid of, theoretically. They are not going to be getting, you know, primo draft picks. Primo, I guess, whatever. Um, sausages right. or whatever you, whatever you I mean, pick. I think that they, there's... I think there's a chance next year that they are more focused on the draft lottery than they were this year. And I know that is kind of like, hey, that's maybe a lesson a year too late. But there are a lot of players I like, a lot of goal scorers I like in 2024, a few good defensemen if they don't make that top end of the draft pick next year. But I think... Um, I think they're going to maybe take it. There's a chance with the new blood with, you know, Danny Breer and Keith Jones espousing a more advanced, like, Hey, we understand this is a different league and we need to try to win in a different way. Um, you know, maybe it's, it's more possible than last year that, um, they hang in there for the draft pick, but I do think they have to be bold. Uh, You know, that's kind of, you know, Toronto Maple Leafs guys are talking about it. Um, you know, every, it's copycat league. Everyone's trying to do the Kachuk trade over again. I don't think that's the type of bold they need to be. But I think they need to be bold in, hey, let's, you know, if we get a good offer for for, for, for Konechny, let's do it. Like everybody, Carter Hart, too. Maybe, maybe, but goaltending's the thing you need to pr- – right away to pull up and the most important part once you get to the playoffs and he's relatively young enough. So that's the only one I think you'd have to, you, I'd, I'd be willing to move my line in the sand for connecting and stuff. And, and, you know, all right, it might be picks. It might be futures. Maybe connecting could still be a value to the franchise, but let's just take it. Let's be bold. Um, you know, but with Carter Hart, I think they'd really have to, wow me um because yes urson is really exciting can he but is he there yet is he more than a flash in the pan and stuff i i'd wait on him but you're right you could really get a killing for him and if you know if i could trade carter hart to move to like second overall in this draft you know trade the whatever pick they have seventh right and move up to two and get Adam Fantilli. Yeah, I'm doing it. You know, so But even then like if, you, if you're if you're thinking about being bold, you have to be willing to take yeah. steps but, that might be uncomfortable, I mean, but as long as no, the plan is prescribed to the people and to the public in a way that they can understand and that they can at least under 
you know, interpret, okay, they got a plan here. I might not agree with the plan in some of its details, but they yeah. have a plan. I don't, I don't think anyone's untouchable. I would say the two closest people to untouchable are probably Samuel Erson, because there's no reason to make that move. Uh, and then probably Scott Lawton, because there's no way Torts has given him up. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, they, through the rebuild and through everything, it's clear that they want to continue building the culture through that Torts model and through their leadership, and they need somebody to do it. And, you know, I think Lawton is the right match of leadership skills plus probably not getting you enough of a return to make it worthwhile. That, that um, sounds about right to me. It's going yeah. to be tricky, but the Flyers fans will understand. Every sports fan base now understands what rebuilds are like if you communicate it well to the public. And if you do it right and you communicate it properly and because Keith Jones is Keith Jones, he's very likable and Flyers fans know him, you know, he's, his job is to manage down to Briere, up to Comcast and out to the fans. If he can do that well, then people would stomach, you know, okay, these are going to be a couple tough years. But you have to be able to do that properly, right? And yeah. we're going to see whether they can do it or not. It's one of those things where I'm skeptical because it's not any fault of Keith Jones or Daniel Briere, but they're former Flyers. And, I mean, it's not the 70s Flyers, but it's like, you know, a certain yeah. generation of and, Flyer. And, and people who say, like, I, I love the article saying that, you know, Keith Jones isn't a Flyer because he played more games elsewhere. When then Keith Jones saying, I wouldn't do this for any other franchise besides the Philadelphia Flyers. It was, you know, I was, I'd be happy to be a commentator and in the broadcast booth, unless it's the, if, unless it's the Flyers. This was the only challenge that I want, you know. Yeah, he can say all that, but like, I mean, the dude didn't go to Washington to to do radio or anything. It was, it was local. He, he apparently moved to Florida and is still doing all of the travel to come to Philly to do all yeah. of these games. Yeah, I mean it. And then there's guys like Rick Tockett, who a lot of guys would be like, oh, yeah, he's a big Flyers guy and everything. I don't count him as a Flyers guy at all because he picks Pittsburgh over Philadelphia. He was living in Pittsburgh and only doing the job in Philly because that was the only one he, he could really get because of the you know his firing and the timing and all that. And as soon as he got national stuff, he was gone, poof, I'm, you know, I don't need, I'm not doing this anymore. But he was driving from Pittsburgh to Philly to do this stuff. So, um yeah. Keith Jones is a flyer. Yeah. Danny I mean, Breer obviously is yeah. a flyer. I mean, yeah. Keith Jones is a flyer. He's played it with Eric Lindros and John LeClaire. You know, he wasn't that great, but at least he has the awareness to know that. And But he does know what those guys did. He does know, you know, he's been around the league long enough. He's been around good players. I mean, there's a lot to like there. Me, personally, I would have wanted somebody with somebody else like Keith Jones can be involved Danny Breer like maybe there's somebody who's going to be like around Danny Breer like in between Jones and Danny Breer that's outside the org you know that you know brings in a different perspective um or you know hopefully they just have a really strong like data data team and and I mean, Eric Tulski got his start on Broad Street Hockey. Yeah, anyway, well, he's interviewing for the Pittsburgh job. I know, so I know, more, I saw more that. More sad noises out of Philadelphia for Ugh. that because if he gets that, that's going to be bad news Ooh, for everybody. Yeah, I, that's not going to be I fun. I mean, I don't think he's like. Listen, 
I, I like the myth of, and obviously he's done some great work and he deserves to be a GM in this league. But I don't, I, I hope he doesn't have the pressure of, oh, the Penguins hired the next big GM, the guy, the, the who, analytics guy, yeah. you know, the guy's responsible for all this great stuff. And then, you know, cause he's inheriting a, a really bad cap situation with an aging core that he doesn't have flexibility to move. You know, he's not going to get the buy-in from Fenway Sports to move Crosby or Latang and probably Malkin because Crosby will, won't allow it. And the, the owners want to make money. And those guys still sell jerseys, still bring in season tickets, and they still got enough left in the tank to make you believe it's worthwhile to per- pursue. So, I mean, he's going to have... I just don't want the pressure of, like, he's going to fix the issues. He's going to bring another cup to this core. He might. He definitely has the ability to. But I, that's that's going to be a tough job for whoever gets it, for sure, because there's going to be a lot of expectations about keeping the old guard happy, but also challenging them enough to get the most out of them and to, you know, it's going to be hard to tell Malkin that he needs to maybe take a step back or you know, do things a little differently if they want to have the youth and speed to win in this new NHL. You know, that's, that's going to be a hard sell. How are you going to do that? Is it is Mike Sullivan the guy to do that? You know, who's that's going to be a big hire uh, if you're replacing Sullivan. You're not um, going to get a guy better than him, and, that's and for sure. That's, so, like, to me, I would rather be in Danny Breer's spot than going into Pittsburgh. I think it makes a lot more sense if you're in Danny Breer's spot because everybody understands it's a rebuild. You're starting from basically nothing. And you have a lot more bullets in the chamber. You're at a point where the fan base can't, like, I don't, like, they're not going to, the only step lower is, like, tuning out. Like, this is the angriest I've seen the floor, the, the, sorry, it's usually Florida. (laughs) That's correct. This is the angriest I've seen the Philadelphia fan base. And, when people get beyond this angry, they just ignore, like they tune out, they don't care anymore. Like it's, it, you know, so that's good and bad, but they're definitely going to have, he's definitely going to have more time to make an impact, take things slow, build his way. And he has more flexibility. There's nobody in the fan base that's going to get that. The fan base isn't going to revolt if one person gets traded or if a lot of people get traded. If Provorov gets traded, if Konechny gets traded, if heck, if Fairby gets traded and it's an intriguing return, fans are going to like it, or it's, or they're not going to really care either way. It's, it's like it's a, it's a rebuild. Situation. Yeah, and you're at the very beginning of it because it took so long for them to announce it. They announced it with your hiring, <laughs> so you're starting. You know, New they Orange. Always talk about, they always talk about GMs having like you know a couple bullets in the chamber in like three to five years before they get judged. And, you know, that's the case where, if you know, you're going into Pittsburgh, you're probably starting with half of that. You got a year, maybe a year and a half, and only one, you know, probably only, you know, one bullet in like a tr- one or two bullets in the coach move and a trade. And, you know, you that's about it. So... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be Spe- interesting. Speaking of, speaking of that, as we end this show, we have to say uh, it sucks that Connor Bedard is going to Chicago. I was very depressed when I saw that. 
Um, thankfully, yep. the NBA, Victor Wenbanyama is going to the Spurs, and everybody likes Greg Popovich. So that yeah. at least ended a and little better. Know, I mean, I know, I know every draft or every couple drafts in every sport that's like this guy, this this prospect is going to change the game, is the best in everything. But when they do come along, it's nice for them. I don't know much about basketball, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But it's nice that they're going to go to an organization that has the capability of developing them into reaching their potential. And, you know, I can tell you that Wembanyama is going to the single best possible place for that, (laughs) the San Antonio Spurs. I'm not the biggest NBA fan, but even I know that the team of David Robinson and Tim Duncan that has won a million titles and is one of the best-run organizations in sports, even now with a guy like that coach. Yeah, I mean, they've had a couple different cores. You know, there's the Eva Longoria's husband or ex Tony Parker, yeah. Yeah, yeah but let's, like, let's call Mono him by Ginobili. his real name. They're great. But <laughs> this is not Chicago. And I want to say, look, at, at everybody who is saying yeah. Connor Bedard should pull a Lindros and get out of Chicago because <laughs> we, we all hate that organization – I, I really am glad that we have reached a point where every single person, other than Blackhawks fans, was sick to their stomach when they saw that they won the draft lottery. We have advanced yeah. as a society. It sucks. There's so Bedard many reasons. A, yeah, th- but he was a five-year-old when all of the nasty stuff that that organization did went down. That's just not what he's going to do. Yeah, and he was like 17 when it all came out, so that's terrible. I mean, it's... it's, it, it's you know? And, but, and I wish that there were more punishments. I wish that, you know, if you can't bring yourself to dock the Blackhawks draft picks for that, then make them pick 32 in the first round for the next three years, whatever. I, I agree. I agree. It is ridiculous that you can lose a first-round draft pick because you do a workout and take notes on prospects. You can lose a first-round draft pick because you just use a loophole. Don't even do anything illegal. Use a loophole that people got mad about in the Kovalchuk contract, and that gets punished with, we're taking a first-round pick from you. Not, we're moving you to the end. We're taking it from you, and this is going to have... And the reason they do that is because it has a ripple effect of implications. It's the best way to hurt you. It takes the lifetime, like the lifetime value of a top pick is a lot of dollars. How, how different but, is the league can, if the Blackhawks had to pick 32 this year, no matter where finished. they finished? Yeah. And, and like, yeah. there's only 15 teams in the lottery, and Anaheim wins the draft yeah. lottery. Anaheim finished second for Crosby and for Bedard. I mean, if you look at it, like Sharks, Anaheim, or Columbus, I would all prefer that. Heck, I'd rather... Mont- like, there wasn't one team... There wasn't one team... Bes- that I wanted, that I would care if they won first overall, second overall, or third overall. I just wanted Chicago fourth. That's oh, all I it's wanted. So bad, and, and it's and it yeah. stinks that Bedard, and it stinks that you know we are projecting onto Connor Bedard all of what we think of the Chicago yeah, Blackhawks. And, and I wanted to like him too. I, I'll try. <laughs> I'll try. I think he's but- going to be. I think he's going to be, in terms of like a personal. You know, he sounds like a hockey player, he talks like a hockey player, they all do. But for me, it's like, when you're kind of divorcing, you know, superstar from team that they're on, you know, in the kind of like, it takes a while to divorce that if you don't like the team. But like with this, it's going to be hard because the Blackhawks, I was reading, and we'll end on this, I was reading Mark Lazarus, Scott well, Powers, the it. folks. Yeah, well, I was reading those guys on the, uh, on the Athletic. When it came to talking about the Blackhawks, it's like their dark arrow lasted 25 days. Like, 
For a franchise that did yep. what they did, the Dark Era season, should not last less than a month. Yeah. It should be a lot longer yeah. than that, I, and it yeah. didn't, and that's not yeah, fair. But there's so, like, the, the, and again, there's a lot of people who won't believe in conspiracy theory that the stuff is rigged and everything, but at least apply this to why Chicago didn't get harsher penalties for what happened and transpired, but... The NHL and Gary Bettman are scared shitless of what will happen if Chicago is not doesn't have premier stars to make them in, get into the playoffs every year. They need that market to be good. And the Warts family, the, the Blackhawks organization, has shown that the only way that is a stable franchise is to be in the playoffs every year and have superstars that the NHL goes out of their way to market excessively. It's the Pittsburgh issue all over again. They cried foul to get Patrick Kane and everything. And now with the threat of the negative press, with the threat of Kane and Taves leaving and having to go on a long rebuild without any hope, they they got scared again. And they had to make sure that they got... A, a top player. If the NHL isn't capable of doing the draft lottery show right, then they're not capable of rigging the lottery. Now, are the, is the NHL ecstatic that he's in Chicago? Yes, Absolutely. because the NHL... Here's the way you know. Your, your point about the league liking Chicago being good is taken. The Game 7 Seattle-Dallas was the most watched Western Conference playoff game in seven years, and yep. the game that re- replaced it but, was involving the Blackhawks. So, yeah, the league likes it when teams like that are good. It's. I'm not. It wasn't rigged because the league's not capable. That's Hanlon's razor. The I, league is incompetent. I'm. Gonna, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lot of incompetent companies that are good at stealing wages from their workers. Oh, that's apparently that's easier to do no, than running a good NHL franchise. But, anyway, yeah. I mean, I just think that to me, whether it's rigged or not, the NHL spends way too much time trying to prove to you that it's rigged than just showing the damn thing live, and that's sketchy. You have to admit that on the face, that's sketchy, that they go through so much effort to try to convince you after the fact that it's not rigged versus just like, hey, we're going to do it live. And then not answer, like, you know, the fact, like, Doth protests too much and they refuse to do the thing that they need to do. The last time they did the balls live, they had that weird New New York, you know, New York. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that was rigged, man. And, like, you can rig that stuff. Like, you know, the magicians exist. Like, that sleight of hand stuff is easy to do. And even if they broadcasted it live, it's easy to, to, to rig that stuff. The fact that corporate lawyers are in the room or team representatives are in the room doesn't mean anything. Like, you know, like it can still get rigged. It can still be controlled, manipulated, etc. And at the end of the day... The NHL, whether it's rigged or not, the NHL constantly makes decisions that I think are counteractive to the league's best interest. Oh, that I will agree with. Being so concerned about Chicago being good, having fans generating revenue, but being so stubborn that they let the Coyotes still exist in Arizona. Oh, I'm not getting into that. and and all you know i feel bad for coyotes fans i feel bad for coyotes fans but that organization should have been moved a while ago because it's just not gonna work 
and they're not and if they want it to work so bad they would have put more money into the campaign to win the votes they needed to to build this stadium which seemed like their last ditch effort the owners he's picked or the owners that wanted to buy that he had to choose from have been terrible uh, in Arizona I, I, I do have to say, I haven't watched the BlackBerry movie yet. I want to because I use Blackberries longer than any normal human being otherwise would have because I like <laughs> keyboards. But I will I, say that there a is point. a bit in the movie about Jim Balsilli trying to buy NHL franchises, and apparently it's very good, so I am looking forward to watching that. <laughs> as, as I am looking That's forward great. to watching the Panthers and the Hurricanes, yeah. this is going to be a fun series. Thank you for sticking yeah. with us. A lot more cool stuff coming to Y-Hockey. But until then, I, good night, real good quick, hockey. Real quick, real quick. Since we're talking draft, this top five is ridiculous. Bedard, Fantilli, and then whether you want to go Carlson or Smith at number three, uh, and then the next one, and then and Mitchkoff to, to round it out. I mean, that is five possible franchise players right it's, there. To the 2003 and, draft took place in Nashville, yeah, and I we mean, still have 2003 stars in the league, and 2023 is in Nashville. There's a, There's like... A lot of good defensemen, you know, uh, that you could get in that set six, seven, eight range. Uh, th- and then we're not even talking about like Zach Benson and, and some of these Oliver Moore and some of these other Fords that, you know, would go higher in most drafts. It is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'm, uh, and there's going to be a lot of wild trades because everybody has now decided that we have to do, as you said, do the Kachuk trade over and over again. <laughs> good night and good hockey and go Panthers.